Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Seta. I had an amazing time at the Mother of Pearls conference in Minneapolis a few weeks ago. You might have seen me incognito as Doc Brown from Back to the Future, as I made a cameo for my final appearance with the band Relapse. Yes, as life is getting busier, it's time for me to hang up the wig and leather pants for now. It's been an incredible ride, and I'm forever grateful to my friends, Drs. Cole Johnson, Kyle Fagala, Chris Teeters, and Brian Anderson. It was so great connecting and even reconnecting with friends and colleagues at MOPC, which was, for most of us, our first in-person meeting since COVID. I also really appreciate all the kind words and feedback on Illuminate. I was able to record three new episodes at MOPC, and I'm excited to release those in the coming months. If you weren't able to be in Minneapolis, I hope to catch you in less than two weeks at the Orthopreneur Summit in Denver. Now, without further ado, we're on to today's episode. I was very much like you, you know. I wasn't afraid to place tads, but at the same time, you know, I didn't have the success rates I really wanted to have, and that was bothersome to me. And I thought we could do better. I'm Dr. Chris Seta, and I'm shining a light on the innovators of our profession. Welcome to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. On today's show, my guest is Dr. Sebastian Baumgartel. What makes an innovator? As I reflect on the 10th episode of Illuminate, we've shined a light on inventors and entrepreneurs in the orthodontic specialty. Some have brought forth new orthodontic products, while others have novel approaches in marketing or customer service. There's no consensus on how to classify or even categorize innovation. One author, Robert Garish, defined innovation in six areas. Product innovation, what we produce and sell, Service innovation, that is, exceeding customer expectations. Process innovation, or continuous improvement of how we do things. Management innovation, which is business strategies, systems, and structures. Open innovation, or working beyond boundaries and collaborating globally. And value innovation, simply creating unique value that eliminates the cost to compete. But to me, an innovator is someone who simply sees the world differently and is always moving forward. In that spirit, today I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Sebastian Baumgartel. For those of you unfamiliar with Sebastian, he spent much of his early career in academia as a clinical professor at Case Western Reserve University. By the mid-2000s, orthodontic miniscrews for skeletal anchorage were considered the next big thing in orthodontics. However, these temporary anchorage devices were often too temporary, as many tads would get loose or even fall out. As a true innovator, Sebastian developed a name for himself by discovering what makes these orthodontic miniscrews less likely to fail. So were tads simply a fad, or do they have a place in the modern orthodontic practice? On today's episode, we explore how you can predictably and successfully incorporate TADS to achieve better and more predictable clinical outcomes. Well, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, Sebastian? Hey, Chris. I'm great, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Why don't you tell everyone where we're at? 
Well, we're in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio, in my home, and uh, we're sitting in the living room recording the Illuminate Orthodontic podcast. And I have to thank you for being an awesome host. Beautiful home you have. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, And it's a real honor that you came all the way out to Cleveland to visit. You know, some people might think Cleveland's a little random, but there is a Cleveland connection here. And that random fact, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was doing his ophthalmology residency at the time at Case Western. And uh, that's when I appeared on the scene. Yeah, it's so weird that once you mention that you live in Cleveland, how many people come out of the woodworks and actually have some sort of a connection to the city? I never realized that before, but it's quite interesting. You know, I joke that being born in Cleveland, raised in New Jersey, and now living in Florida, I'm pretty much the butt of every single joke. (laughs) (laughs) You know... I'd say you moved on to greener pastures because to me, it doesn't get much better than Florida. Well, yeah, it's sort of crazy down there right now with COVID, but... Yeah, no kidding. I've heard about that, but I think we're dealing with that everywhere. Yeah, for sure. So why don't you tell everyone what we're drinking? Well, uh, you'd mentioned that uh, you like gin, and so I thought... uh, Yeah, and so I thought it'd be a good idea to explore in aviation as one of my favorite cocktails, although... I haven't made that in a in a very long time, so uh, I thought great opportunity. So, what's in an aviation? Well, it is a gin based cocktail, and so I used Plymouth gin, and um, then there's some maraschino liqueur and some creme de violette and some fresh pressed lemon juice. Gotta have the fresh pressed juice. I think that's the key. One hundred percent. And then you uh, you shake it really hard and get it chilled really nicely and. And pour it into a martini glass and finish that off with a nice maraschino cherry at the bottom. And this is a delicious cocktail. So were you going to post this recipe? You know, we can do that. If people want to replicate that at home while they listen to the podcast, uh, why don't we do that? We'll, we'll post the recipe yeah. and, uh, and you'll find that on either your or my Instagram. Yeah, for sure. And you're relatively new to the social media scene. Yeah, absolutely. You know... Uh, In this case, I was definitely not an early adopter. I stayed away from that because I value my privacy and I thought it's it's not for me. But, uh, you know, eventually I I warmed up to the idea, was gently nudged by a few friends to to get on Instagram at least. It's actually been really interesting. I, I try to use Instagram for orthodontics mainly and to educate people and to keep them updated on what I do in orthodontics and how I treat patients and uh, and people have been really receptive i just today cracked the thousand follower mark after a few months on instagram so i'm, I'm really proud of yeah, that yeah congrats and i i think it was what like december 2020 basically you told me you joined yeah i joined when i got my covid vaccine on december 30th i joined to document how i responded to it because people were so dubious of the vaccine and i thought hey this is sort of a live experiment and uh, i'd share that with people and if it all turns out okay maybe i can motivate more people to get the vaccine so that was that was kind of my reason to get on instagram yeah which is great and i'm glad you didn't grow like a third arm or a eye or something like that <laughs> i was admittedly a little concerned but like i said got vaccinated december 30th i jumped on it at the first opportunity i had and uh and i'm looking forward to my third jab if i can get one actually me too it's interesting because you sort of have done an about face a little bit with social media where you shunned it and now you've totally embraced it. And I did a similar thing that I think it was like 2016. I had no social media up until then. So it's really just been, I guess, five years. And uh, it's funny for my friends to see that of having no Facebook or Instagram and I've sort of gone all in the other way. So 
Yeah, that's that's how it goes sometimes, right? And I was a little bit afraid it'd be a colossal waste of time, and it does take quite a bit of time, but I find it worthwhile, and uh, it's kind of fun, kind of fun. Yeah, and I, I noticed you have a pretty strong international presence, too. I'd love to have more followers in the U.S., but somehow that, that kind of uh, came about like that, that I have... Probably over half of the people following me are from abroad. You know, a lot of people in South America, a lot of people in Europe, a lot of people in Australia. So Middle East also very strong. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I believe you speak several languages, right? Yes, yes, I do, actually. And at some point, I contemplated on uh, doing bilingual posts and, and posting in different languages. But I settled on just posting uh, in English. Although I do speak a fair number of languages, but uh, really only keep up with English and Romanian, which is the other language I grew up with because my mother was Romanian. But you speak German, too. Well, I was born and raised in Germany, and... Um, I was born in Hanover and grew up in, in the former capital before it moved to Berlin. I grew up in mm. Bonn. So that's where, where I went to uh, the Bonn American Elementary School, believe it or not. The mm. Department of Defense had a base in Bonn. And so the Americans had a high school and, a, and an elementary school and a kindergarten. And I was fortunate enough to, to go there. And that's where I, where I picked up my English when I was really young. Interesting. And what did your parents do? Well, my parents were both orthodontists, so I kind of just uh, followed the legacy. And what's interesting is that both my brothers are also dentists. They didn't go into orthodontics, but yeah, we got that tooth thing implanted in us really, really young. So, Oh, very interesting. And then I believe you went to Helmholtz Gymnasium Bonn. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that's actually really, really good. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. You can uh, correct me. No, no. Helmholtz Gymnasium is exactly the way you say it. Okay. Yep. And uh, yeah, I, that was basically high school. From there, I, I graduated. And we don't have college in Germany, so high school is a little bit longer. And then from there, you go straight to dental school, for example, which is which is what I did. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. cool. And so dental school was in Germany. Yeah. And then what made you want to come to the United States? Well, I didn't even want to become an orthodontist at first. Uh, I mm -hmm. was quite talented at Prost. And at the time, Prost, at least in, in our school, was kind of the coveted specialty that everybody wanted to get into. And on the day of the final exams, or rather when I picked up my grades, the professor called me into his office with the head of the department, and he offered me a spot in the Prost department in the, in the residency there. And I, I took that. I thought I was much smarter than my parents wanting to, you know, go into Prost. And it was seemed like a cool specialty. And after you know, being in that residency for a while, I realized my parents were actually a lot smarter than I was. And, <laughs> you know, I, I thought, yeah, I think orthodontics is, is what I really want to do. At least at the time, you know, I thought there's no better place to, to learn orthodontics than in the U.S. And then hmm. I, I was very lucky to get accepted into a residency here and ended up in Cleveland, Ohio at Case Western Reserve and uh, been here ever since. I know a lot of times when foreign trained or internationally trained dentists come to the States, they either have to do what, like a two-year sort of post-bac doctoral program or specialty training. Is that correct? Yeah. So that's if you want to stay here and you want to, you want to get licensed here. I had no such intentions because my parents had offices in Germany and I just wanted to get a really good education, become a specialist, and then go back to Germany and mm -hmm. uh, eventually take over their offices. But, uh, you know, I, I love the American way of living so much that uh, never went back. So. You got sucked in. I totally did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, and then I believe after you finished your program, you basically stayed on as a faculty member at Case Western, right? 
Yeah, right. That was one of the really appealing things to me here in the U.S. at the time in Germany. You couldn't be part-time academic and part-time private practitioner. You had to make a choice to either be full-time mm. academic or full-time private practice. And here in the U.S., you know, everybody was doing the part-time thing or the volunteer faculty member thing. That appealed to me. Now, at first, I didn't have a license, and uh, so I was able to get, you know, an educator's license, and I was full-time uh, faculty member at Case Western. And then as I got my license and gradually reduced that to part-time, because like we all know, academia doesn't pay the bills, and you do pile up some student loans. So I tried mm -hmm. to pay those off really quickly, transitioned to part-time, and eventually really just volunteer faculty at this at this point. But you're still basically the director of, I believe, the Skeletal Anchorage Program and the Biomechanics course, right, at Case? I am, yeah. yeah, And I still do that and do it passionately and hope I continue to do that for a long time. Awesome. And I also learned that you're on faculty at MUSC, right, with Dr. Tremont? Yeah, I go there and teach. I don't have an official faculty position where I do have a, a faculty position at the University of Melbourne in Australia. And that's that's really cool. I'm really what? proud of that. Yeah, 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 it is. It is probably the premier university, the premier ortho program in the in the Asia Pacific region, and uh, yeah, Professor Schneider, who heads the department there, is just absolutely fantastic, and I'm I'm really proud of being on faculty there. Wow, that's incredibly cool. Yeah. So you know, before COVID, how often would you actually get over there to Australia? Or is everything sort of virtual? And, and None, nothing was ever virtual until COVID hit. Now it mm. is, but uh, before that, I I went once a year, and I I did my teaching duties there, and. Um, you know, I have friends down there, which are so far away that it's always great to just go there and do some teaching and see my friends. And uh, Australia is just a phenomenal country. So it's it's really, really cool. Oh, man, I've never been. It's on the list. I'd, I'd love to go to Australia, New Zealand. So it's just far away. Maybe you know? one day there'll be an Illuminate podcast from Australia. I don't yeah. know. One can hope. I'd love to make the intro there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, Sebastian, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is I really consider you sort of like an innovator on the use of temporary anchorage devices or, or TADs, as we are the, sort of known in the vernacular, to achieve skeletal anchorage. You have numerous publications. I think it was 28 last at my count. I imagine most of them had to do with TADs. And I believe you're also associated with Dentarum, if I'm correct on that. Yeah. So... First of all, I'm really flattered that you think I'm an innovator. I kind of consider myself as a very conservative orthodontist, but you're right. I mean, I was a little bit of a trailblazer back in the days. Tads have become sort of mainstream at this point, at least with the younger graduates, which is great, which I've always tried to, to propagate. I, I wanted to make these mainstream, and and it seems like we've we've gotten there. You know, Tads have a very special place in orthodontics because I tend to always explain to people that they change treatment outcomes. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the innovations these days that we talk about so much like 3D imaging, 3D printing, you know, CAD CAM, all that stuff, it changes treatment delivery in my mind. But we have yet to show that it really changes treatment outcomes. Now, mm. TADS, there's no doubt that they change treatment outcomes because first of all, we're in total control of tooth movement. We do not depend on compliance as much anymore. And we can move teeth not only the way we plan to move them without the patient's compliance, but also in ways that we couldn't move them before the advent of TADS. So to me, they're a total game changer. And uh, that's why I'm still passionate about TADS, even after 17 years of talking about them almost every day. Yeah, I think the first time we became acquainted was the Dynaflex Synergy meeting, which was 
in Las Vegas, February 2020. I mean, basically a couple of weeks before COVID hit. And I had heard you speak. I don't think we really formally met, but I remember you being on stage and the way you present yourself and the way you teach TADS, I think is just fantastic. Really opened up my mind to it. And I knew you were somebody I had to get on the show. So as far as my TAD knowledge, I shared with you, I am a total novice. So I probably placed eight TADs in my residency program. I'm not sure we always needed those TADs, honestly, but we were placing them, you know, because uh, as a resident, you need to get, you need to practice these things. I probably had at least half fail on me, which is, you know, one of the things that maybe TADs get a bad rap about, which we'll touch on here in a second. I would say most of them, uh, we did what's called indirect anchorage, but I guess you can also hook up directly to a TAD, and that's called direct anchorage. So why don't you just give us like a a brief overview, if you will, on indications for TADs, best places to put TADs? Yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd be delighted to. At the end of the day, you can put a TAD anywhere you you find bone. But we all learn in dental school that there are different qualities of bone, and, and there are certainly different quantities of bone too, as we found out with cone beam imaging that, you know, cortical bone thicknesses vary greatly between the jaws and even within the jaw. There's very different thicknesses of cortical bone in different areas. And that has an impact on where you want to place the TADs. It also has an impact on your success with the TADs. You know, there's there's a very interesting interplay that you have to respect when you use TADs between the so-called primary and secondary stability. And that primary stability is essentially mechanical retention. And uh, most of the TADs we use here in the U.S. are titanium. So when a dentist hears titanium, they immediately think of osteointegration. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of exactly what we don't want because at the end of the day, TAD stands for temporary anchorage device and we want to remove those easily. And so, uh, you know, we use these mini screws with highly polished shanks. So, you know, when we talk about primary stability being mechanical retention, that's a given. That's the same for dental implants. But when we talk about secondary stability, that traditionally includes not just mechanical retention, but actual osseointegration where the bone kind of fuses to the implant surface, grows into the implant surface. And uh, that's something that we're trying to avoid with TADs. And so at the end of the day, a TAD, even after weeks of healing, really only has uh, mechanical retention. So the success rates are naturally lower. The deck is maybe stacked a little bit against us compared to traditional dental implants. And so you have to be extra careful uh, how you use these TADs to make sure you don't have excessive failures. And back in the day, I think we're sort of the same, you know, same vintage. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we were taught that, okay, TADs are never going to be super successful, but they're inexpensive. They're easy to place. So if they fall out, you just replace them. And that was kind of an attitude that was perpetuated by the companies that, you know, were selling these. And of course, it's in their favor that you use more TADs. Because Makes sense, yeah. yeah. Um, and that never made sense to me because I found it extremely frustrating when TADs failed because at the very least, it increases treatment time. And sometimes it introduces asymmetries. And so that was one of the, the things that I got to work on. How can we increase the success rates of these TADs? Because I was very much like you, you know, I, I wasn't afraid to place TADs. So I placed a lot of TADs and I was lucky that I was allowed to do that at Case Western. But at the same time, um, you know, I didn't have the success rates I, I really wanted to have. And that that hmm. uh, that was bothersome to me. And, and I thought we could do better. And yeah, you mentioned my publications. So I do all this work for, for myself when I have a question. That's the privilege 
you have when you're when you're a professor you donate your time essentially but you can use the university's resources for research and i was able to shed a little bit of light on why tads might fail and essentially to put it simply two major causes the first cause is that you don't respect the bone enough so Mm -hmm. with tads you should really avoid the extremes so if you place tads in in cortical bone areas that is too thin then the tads will lack primary stability, which means they never have good mechanical stability and they're probably going to fail rather quickly under load. And so like an example might be like the posterior maxilla, right? Yeah, the like posterior maxilla. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The posterior maxilla, for example, where, you know, you have that balsa wood quality bone, like that D4 quality, where a cortical bone is very thin and we know cancellous bone doesn't contribute much at all. So yeah, that would be an area to definitely avoid. And the other extreme is the area where the cortical bone is too thick. You know, when Mm. you place tads where cortical bone is too thick, people always think, well, my tad might fracture. But that's actually not even the major concern to me. It's more that, you know, cortical bone thickness relates to insertion torque. And if the insertion torque, which is pretty much a proxy measure for bone compression, that gets too large then you damage the bone and you create so-called compression osteonecrosis, which results in oh, wow. yeah, resorption. And so you got to avoid the extremes. And if you place TADs in, the, in those, you know, uh, very medium cortical bone thickness areas, you've done away with one of the major factors for, for TAD failure. And the other one is root proximity, and you got to stay away from roots. And that, that's basically successful TADs 101 in a nutshell. When we come back, in just a moment, we discuss best practices for placing TADs, indications for mini screws, and Sebastian's wise insight on what he considers to be the spare tire of teeth. Stay with us, you're listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. Kind support for this podcast comes from Lightforce Orthodontics. Lightforce was co-founded by orthodontist Dr. Alfred Griffin and is one of the fastest growing companies in orthodontics. Lightforce provides a digital platform to fully customize 3D printed tooth moving tools. They've recently launched the world's first fully custom 3D printed translucent bracket. And with their revolutionary face map technology, you can even plan for optimal aesthetics in SmileArc by incorporating a digital scan of your patient's face. Complete customization enables your cases to not only finish faster, but with even better results. Head over to lightforceortho.com to request your demo today. Welcome back to my conversation with Dr. Sebastian Baumgartel. Let's talk about initial placement. Are you going off basically palpation and visualization? Are you going off a 2d panoramic image or are you going off a 3d cone beam so you know there's infinite iterations on how you can place tads just like anything in orthodontics i guess and um a lot of it has to do with personal flavor for me i am clinician at the end of the day i see a lot of patients it's got to be quick it's got to be easy and luckily a lot of my studies were focused on finding the ideal insertion sites and when we ran statistics we realized that there are some really reliable patterns in the anatomy of the jaws that you can basically reproduce and find in any given patient. And so I have a few go-to sites that I've built my biomechanics around that for the majority of patients, I don't need any specialized imaging. 
I will do some imaging if I feel like I need to be careful with the roots, but otherwise it's really just, I know where to put them and I put them there. And, uh, those areas are so fail safe that, you know, placing a tad these days is a 30 second affair for me. Awesome. So where are some of these sites that you find? Are- so one of the really interesting things is that beginners always want to start with the, with the buckle alveolar process. They want to place tads in the buckle and that is probably the worst place to place a tad. It's anatomically extremely difficult. The roots are close together and you don't have a lot of attached gingiva. So, you know, if you want to place tad in a really reliable area, you want to go palatal, for example. So the anterior palate is probably the best site that will yield 90 plus percent success without you having any experience. Okay. And then just in terms of anatomy, should you look for, what is it, the nasal palatine foramen? And do you aim for like certain rugae? Yeah. So there's different ways to approach this. You want to look for the nasal palatine foramen, but you want to avoid that. And you want to stay out of the midline in general. I like to stay, you know, a few millimeters left or right of the suture. I've identified the bicuspid area as a really great place to place tad. So distal to the canine, mesial to the first molar, that'll get you right into that sweet spot in the anterior palate. Awesome. All your tads are going just with topical anesthetic? Yeah. So again, there's different ways to do it. When I place tads between the roots, I do like topical because I like to keep the so-called biofeedback coming from the PDL. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. patient will alert me if I get close to a root. But on the palate, where I have no risk of hitting a root, admittedly, the gingiva is a little thicker and topical doesn't work so well. That's where I'll infiltrate. So, you know, except for inner, inner radicular insertions from the buckle, I will I will infiltrate everywhere else. Okay, yeah. sounds good. And what kind of topical? Uh, do you use like a uh, certain prescription topical yeah. versus over-the-counter? I still use that old-school tack alternate 20%, you know, that's like... 20% lidocaine, 4% tetracaine, and, and a little bit of epinephrine. Epinephr- epinephr- okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that just gets the job done really well, and it's it's inexpensive. The pharmacy I use is actually in Hylia, outside of Miami, and, you know, they mix it up for 30 bucks or something like that. Okay. Do you know the name of the pharmacy? It's Universal Arts Pharmacy. Okay. So check that out if you're interested in that. No financial interest in that. Like, by the way... You're no, not a KOL for that? I am not oh, a KOL. Oh, man. That's why I had you on the podcast. <laughs> I'm Come not on, a Sebastian. KOL, period. Uh, I've, this is really important to me. I have no financial interest in anything. You mentioned Dentorum. They've been really good to me. I've helped them with some product development. I guess I don't have the savvy to trademark my ideas like you had. So <laughs> that's something that I'll be picking your brain over I'm dinner. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. So uh, no financial interest at all. They do keep me around, though, because like you said, I have a good lecture style. I understand the topic and, and people like to hear me. So I help them out with lectures, but that's pretty much as far as it goes. Right You're now. a wonderful teacher. It's a skill I, I wish I had. I feel like, uh, to, you know, even just trying to teach my assistants things, I, I just get frustrated with myself, I guess. But it's like a natural talent. So neither neither of your parents were teachers, right? No, my parents were not. I don't know. My two brothers are younger brothers and maybe it comes from there. I just, you know, enjoy being a role model for them. Mm-hmm. Even now, I still get off when I see that light bulb turn on in people's heads. You know, it's yeah. it's amazing. It's People come and they don't understand why do my tads fail. And then, you know, they leave an hour, hour and a half later and, and they have a much better understanding and hopefully can implement that in their practice. Awesome. So I know we talked a little bit already about tads in terms of ideal placement, but maybe we can talk about just in terms of biomechanics, maybe some like indications for tads. Yeah, so... I talked about that today, actually, on a webinar I did, patient selection for TADS, and went through the different indications. And like you very nicely observed, like in the residency, residents tend to go overboard with TAD use because they're 
interested in trying them. They want to gain experience. Tad happy. Tad happy. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, so there are a few indications where I think they're just essential to the modern orthodontic practice. I don't think these days you can run state-of-the-art orthodontic practice without correcting open bites with TADS or at least offering that. Distalization is another big topic where I think TADS have some tangible benefits. Mild to moderate class threes, you know, which be it a compliant or non-compliant patient, a lot of times elastics just don't bail you out enough and Mm. then you resort to maybe extracting. So uh, TADS are super beneficial there. And there are so many different indications where they're nice to have, not necessarily essential. For example, if I have a non-growing class 2 patient, full-step class 2, and and protruding upper incisors, and I extract two upper buys maybe, but what I really want to do is maximize the amount of retraction of the upper incisors. You know, TADs are just invaluable for that. So Mm. the sky is almost the limit, and the craftiness of orthodontists out there, if you just look through the literature, is, is limitless. So if you... You look at the different articles out there and suggestions on how to use TADS, it, it just runs a really wide range. Mm. So, you know, we talked about open bites, which would be mostly like posterior intrusion. Correct. Class threes, non-compliant class threes, class twos, which you mentioned for distalization also. Um, I imagine you can use them for mesialization. So if you have a genesis of some lower premolars and you want to protract the mandibular molars. Yeah. You know, that's a great scenario. That's the number one reason I use TADS, by the way. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I imagine that's a good site to place TADS, which would be sort of in the mandibular buccal process. Yeah, um, yeah. So mesial and distal of the first bicuspid is, is a pretty good spot for TADS in the mandible. The mandible in, in general is a little iffy. But if you think about it, the lower first molar is the most commonly extracted tooth. And uh, then we have the congenitally missing bicuspids. So there's a lot of need for tooth replacement in the mandible. And I always think... If a patient still has a third molar, for example, that's unerupted, why think about dental implants when you could protract and, and use that third molar that I view kind of as a spare tire? Hmm. I love that. Yeah. Spare tire. Yeah, absolutely. I, I still have all four of my third molars impacted. And uh, that's that, why you're so wise. Listen, listen. Worst dental joke ever. No. <laughs> First of all, I use that joke every day in my practice. Um, and 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 second, the only real stem cells that we actually have is around the unerupted or impacted third molars. So I have my own stem cell bank in there. And last but not least, if I ever lose a tooth, I will most certainly do a TAD and try and protract and erupt my impacted third molars. That's awesome. Yeah. What about gummy smiles? Like I see Stu Frost and Trevor Nichols treat some beautifully amazing cases with vertical maxillary excess and yeah. intruding teeth. Yeah. Do you use it for that indication too? Yeah. So uh, these guys do some really great stuff. And uh, Dr. Frost rightfully calls himself the artist orthodontist. I mean, the cases are phenomenal. The finishes are great. But they do not just do maxillary intrusion with TADS. They do the whole thing. They do heart and soft tissue recontouring. So, you know, correcting an extreme gummy smile is a, is a combination of, of multiple approaches. Mm-hmm. But uh, TADS play an important role there. And you can do that non-surgically these days. I mean, how unbelievable is that? 20 years ago, this was this was a clear maxillary impaction case. Right. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of sort of non-surgically, what about uh, the use of MARPIs, which are uh, mini-screw-assisted rapid paddle expansion devices? I got that right? You certainly did. All right, cool. Rolled that one off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, MARPIs have become a really important part in my practice. And uh, SARPIs still have have a place. And I think that for very clear reasons, the uh, science just shows that MARPI effectiveness drops off with increasing age. 
there's a time when toothborne expanders are indicated in my mind, and then there's a time where they no longer do their job. And uh, if you're not willing to compromise, it's time to do a MARPI. And then comes a point where a MARPI may not be doing its job anymore and maybe hitting its limits. And then it comes time to maybe plan a SARPI, but perhaps plan a SARPI in combination with a mini screw anchored expander to get the most out of it. Interesting. Just to uh, touch on, SARPI would be a surgically assisted where they actually physically go in, the oral surgeon will break the suture. That's correct. Um, so um, what would be some like good cases for MARPIs? Like what's your, your patient selection? Patients, female adolescents, when I see a 16-year-old female that has a constricted maxilla, I already start sweating because I know that, you know, traditional expansion is probably not going to get me there as good as I'd like. And if I take a cone beam post-expansion, I probably realize that I'd gotten a lot of dental expansion mm-hmm. and maybe maybe even fenestrations to a certain point. So that's kind of where it starts for me. Age 15, 16, and females, boys, we all know, are a little bit uh, less mature mentally, but also, in this case, physically. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, here, maybe 16, 17 is when I start thinking about MARPIs and male patients. And then, you know, up to age 30, I have no problems doing pure MARPIs. And I found that, you know, beyond that point, it becomes a little bit of a crapshoot. Have I expanded successfully non-surgically using MARPIs in 45-year-old people? I have, but I've also hit the wall in a lot of them. Hmm. And this is then a conversation you want to have with your patient, where you just want to talk to them about, you know, do you want to go surgical? Do you want to attempt this first and keep the surgery option in your back pocket? Because let's face it, if you think about not just the mid-palate suture that may or may not be fully ossified, but all the other uh, circummaxillary sutures and these structures that create a lot of resistance to expansion. Mm. This is also not necessarily a super comfortable experience for the patient to to go through a MARPI. And uh, neither is a SARPI. We have to be honest about that. But it's a conversation you have to have with the patient at that point because MARPIs become less predictable. It doesn't matter what other people say. I think I shared with you sort of where I'm at in my TAD journey, if you will, is, you know, I certainly will recommend TADs, but I typically will try to refer the patient out to either a periodontist or a surgeon to place them, whether it's for posterior intrusion, gummy smile, protracting mandibular molars. And I have to say probably 80% of the patients decline because one, it's just you're referring them to another place. They have to meet a new doctor just to follow up on that. Secondly, the cost is always an issue. So I have a keen interest myself in learning more about TADs and and placing them. Is there an introductory kit that might have maybe different sizes of TADs that you would recommend? Yeah, so... I mean, all the manufacturers, they they sell basically a starter kit, which includes usually a straight driver, perhaps some drill bits for just in case, and X number amount of tads in different configurations, be it length, diameter, different heads if they have different heads. So, you know, that's a little bit individually different between the manufacturers. Dentorum, for example, does sell a starter kit. It was very easy there because the tad only has three lengths. It's all the same diameter. It does have two different heads, one with the cross slot, one with the mushroom head. But this is something where a good mix is kind of a great way to get started. And, you know, don't get hung up on the brand so much. It's more about the fundamentals that you need to understand. And then uh, pick a system that works for you, where you like the way the drivers feel, where you like the way the heads are for your biomechanics. And there's a lot of personal flavor that goes into that. 
that's important. The actual screw itself, what anchors the head and the bone, basically, is not as important. They all do a good job if used properly. Okay, and the lengths are generally 6, 8, and 10 millimeters? Yeah, there's 6, 8, 10. Some now come in 12 and 14. Some have a collar on them of a couple of millimeters, and some don't. So, you know, a 10 millimeter screw from one manufacturer might not be the same length than a 10 millimeter screw from another manufacturer because of head size and collar size. But when we talk about millimeters, it means the shank, the actual part that anchors the tat and the bone. Gotcha. Okay. And then I imagine the shorter ones would be for like the maxillary posterior buckle process, whereas the longer ones, I'm guessing, would go on the palate. Yeah. So for me, the six millimeter screw is the standard screw. I use that on the buckle. I tend to use that in the anterior palate. The posterior alveolar process tends to have thicker gingiva, so there you'll need a longer screw, so 8 or 10 millimeters. And then if you want to get into the more advanced sites like the buckle shelf or the infrazygomatic crest, you definitely need longer tads there to get enough anchorage in the bone at the same time position the head where it needs to be. And the infrazygomatic crest particularly has a lot of mobile soft tissue, so the tad needs to stick out quite a ways so it doesn't get embedded in the tissue. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And then you mentioned the mushroom top and the other one is you call it maybe a slot, which I think of maybe as like a bracket top. I don't know if that's the proper yeah. way of they, they don't use that terminology. Slot would be what I'm looking for. That's what well, I mean, I mean, or is it different uh, with the manufacturer? It, it is a little bit, but okay. like bracket head is a good way to put it. That actually sounds really good. You do have a tenant. <laughs> oh, I sound, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. Here. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a talent, not just for invention, but also for marketing. I like it. <laughs> but yeah, the TAD I use is, has a universal slot. It's a cross slot. It's an 022 slot. So you can anchor any size wire in it as long as it's rectangular and And that'll provide good control for the indirect anchorage that you already mentioned earlier on in this podcast. Yeah. And the mushroom head is more for direct anchorage because it's got a nice undercut and it makes it easy for patients to wear elastics, for example, if they wear aligners and, Mm -hmm. you know, tads and aligners usually require elastic wear. Mm -hmm. And so you want to have a good undercut there. And even for your assistance sake, you know, it's a lot easier to, to hook a power chain or a coil spring to a tad that has a very nice undercut. So yeah, if you want to do indirect anchorage, I do think a slot is very helpful. And otherwise, I do like a very nice design mushroom head. Very good. So I want to touch on this, that you have a course for all things mini screw called the TAD Challenge Course. And I believe it was at one point a one-on-one mentorship. And now it's sort of morphed with uh, COVID into maybe more of like a virtual online course. Yeah, like it, I think I've done that really confusingly because people ask about that all the time. So we we have two different courses. So we have the TAD Challenge, which is still a one-on-one mentorship. It was always always uh, remotely administered though. So okay. the way it works is that, you know, we work up cases together and discuss basically what we discussed today for individual patients. So we mm-hmm. discuss the right insertion site, we discuss the biomechanics, we discuss risks and benefits, and we back that up with science. So, you know, we discuss articles in the process so that there's a really deep understanding when the doctor goes to the patient And then depending on the comfort level of the doctor, you know, I've had one doctor who his assistant filmed him during the insertion. So I was able to critique his form because I obviously can't be physically present for all these insertions for all these doctors, but it's the next next best thing. The other thing that I'm doing for the very first time now, September 25 and 26, is a TAD certificate course, which is an online course. That's just going to be two days of TADs, really in-depth education, because what I've found is that People want to do the TAD challenge with me, but they need theoretical knowledge. And we don't have as many courses now with COVID. So Mm. this is the opportunity for everybody that really wants to learn how to use TADs properly, 
And this is non-commercially, so it's not supported by anybody. I'm just doing that. You sign up for it, and uh, and we'll learn two days until you have a knot in your brain. And uh, <laughs> and then if you want to do the tat challenge, I'm obviously there for you to do that with you. But there's only 10 spots, and uh, we already have a really long waiting list because you can only sign up once a year for that. It goes from January 1st to December 31st. So, yeah, it's those two different things because, like you said, I'm really passionate about educating people, and I think TEDs really have a place in orthodontics and make us all better orthodontists. Stay with us. After a quick word from our sponsor, we discuss everything from trading futures to fitness and tennis, as well as our favorite secret agent you're listening to the illuminate orthodontic podcast kind support for this podcast comes from fishbein fundamentals dr ben fishbein invites you and your team members to beautiful pensacola beach florida i've personally attended this in-office course on several occasions and it's amazing to help with practice growth Dr. Ben and the Fish Ortho team will grant you an all-access pass to their marketing strategies, simplify new patient procedures, and efficient clinical systems. Best of all, you're able to go behind the scenes and observe the Fish Ortho team on an actual patient day. The next course is set for March 11th and 12th. Reserve your spot today at fishbindfundamentals.com. And we're back to my conversation with Dr. Sebastian Baumgartel. Sebastian, I want to transition here to just some fun topics. Here we are sitting in your beautiful living room here in Cleveland, Ohio, and I am below a cool portrait of Roger Moore uh, having a beverage and a cigarette here. Roger Moore as James Bond. I didn't realize this, but you and I are both Bond fans. Well, how can you not? I mean, is there anybody cooler than James Bond? <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I think. I, do you think James Bond is relevant? Because that's what I often, you know, I think about because it's a little misogynistic, really, if you think about it. Yeah, it is a little bit, perhaps. Um, or, or is it just like a bygone era romanticized with the Bond girls? And I think so. And if you actually look closely to the story, James Bond did fall in love. James Bond did it get... It is true. Okay. He did get married and his wife got killed. And uh, I think that would make everybody just stone cold. So that's that's the way I look at Bond, is that just his feelings got blunted. I wouldn't call him misogynist. Okay, there we go. I, I like it. So the next question, who's your favorite Bond? Yeah. Well... Everybody kind of added their personal twist, and even George Lazenby was was an interesting Bond. But, uh, you know, despite having Sir Roger Moore's portrait up here, which I think he had so much charm, to me, my favorite Bond is still Sean Connery. And, oh, yeah. And Give I it think, up. Uh, bump on that. Yeah. He'll always be the true Bond. Too. The late Sean Connery. To me, Sean Connery as Bond, I mean, it was just, it was such a great balance of charm and wit you know, he also, with the physical stunts, he was fantastic. Second favorite for me has to be Daniel Craig. I don't, I don't know your thoughts. If you... I was very critical of Craig at first, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, the first time I watched Casino Royale, I just thought he was too rough around the edges. He's but, very brute. Uh, yes, yes. But I've come around, and uh, and I would have to agree with you now. If I watch a Bond movie, he just does such an excellent job at portraying this character that, yeah, he's, he's my number two. Yeah, I mean, Roger Moore, you know, brought a different flair or twist, like you said, probably a little more, like, campy, I would say. 
but you know they upped the humor game yeah. which which i mean sean had sort of that uh wit to him pierce too you know i think it was a little more campy at that point with some of them and then george lazaby what was yeah, i know he was in one movie refresh me which what was it it was uh, uh, in Her Majesty's Secret Service. Her Majesty's, yeah. which actually was a pretty good movie, like it, Random it, Bond. It was a good movie, and supposedly his uh, his agent told him not to renew his contract. He had the offer to to do oh, more. Oh, is that right? His agent recommended he turns that down so he doesn't get cast type. Well, nobody ever heard of George Lazenby again. Yeah, you know? I know, so, right? <laughs> bad advice That's there. A, so we got to touch on one more thing before we move on from Bond, but favorite Bond movie. To me, hands down, Doctor No. Uh, oh, it, it the was, original. It was the first Bond movie that I can actually remember watching, and I was a pubertal teenager. And the moment Ursula Andress uh, just emerged from <laughs> uh, from the water, I was smitten. With the so, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So it's a young Sean Connery and uh, and a beautiful Beneath Bond the girl. Mango tree, yeah. Yes, yes, and it's got the Caribbean flavor, which I love. And yeah, yeah so I. I do love Dr. No. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Mine is probably Goldfinger. And then second, Thunderball. So both Sean Connery movies. And then if I had a, a third, I, I actually liked Casino Royale, believe it or not. I, I did too, ultimately. I did too. Yeah. And uh, Goldfinger, you know, the, the, the Bond villain was a German, Gerd Fröbe. And, Wait, uh, say that again? <laughs> Gerd Fröbe. <laughs> and uh, funny enough, he never played a villain in German movies or in German television, but he was an excellent villain. And, Goldfinger. Uh, Goldfinger, yeah. And... Uh, I love the fact that there's a scene um, in Miami at the Fontainebleau. And that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that was that's one of my hotels that I love to go to simply simply because of uh, James Bond. James Bond, <laughs> so cool. So I love that you have so many passions and interests. I'm going to just mention a few of them here, and we can chat about any of them that you like. Not that I'm an expert, but you play chess, tennis, you garden. I saw your beautiful garden out here growing lovely tomatoes. You're also a futures trader. Uh, which I think is super interesting because my investment knowledge is basically just um, putting some money in mutual funds, sort of boring. Which one do you want to talk about? Well, I don't know. The gardening aspect uh, that you just brought up is something that I developed over the years. It's just very meditative for me. And uh, mm-hmm. and eating what you grow is highly satisfying. You had some of our uh, wonderful local grown tomatoes that were right here out of the backyard. What, what was the variety? You know, I have no idea. It's some heirloom type, um, and they grow so big that I always have to support the plants. It's just a different flavor when they come straight off the plant. And I I like to eat, and I like to drink, and I like high-quality food. And if I can grow some of that myself, it's not just meditative, but it's also very satisfying. So I've just uh, grown into loving uh, a little bit of gardening. So besides tomatoes, what else are you growing out there? Well, right now it's really just tomatoes and peppers. I realize they do really well with the busy schedule of an orthodontist. They're pretty Mm -hmm. self-sufficient. I've tried a bunch of other stuff over the years, but uh, these are incidentally also vegetables that I, I like a lot where it just gets me out and gets me moving and gets me into fresh air, which goes a long way after after a day in practice. So, yeah. And yeah. you're also really into working out, which I appreciate. And I've been a little better recently. I haven't always been the best with devoting time for my health. And recently I got a personal trainer and it's amazing. My energy levels have really yeah. just changed and I've really focused on uh, stretching. I had a shoulder problem recently. You know, I know that's something that you're passionate about. You want yeah. to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all aware of the mind body connection. I just don't feel so good if I'm not physically active. And I've had times, listen, when I moved to the U S the lifestyle change of being bound to 
a car to get anywhere, being in a residency that basically takes the majority of the day and part of the night. And then the American diet was a killer. Within a year and a half, I was 245 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was a chunky guy at six feet. That's a lot, you know. I remember one time the elevator at the dental school was broken. I had to go up to the chairman's office in the third floor and I had to pause, you know, uh, mm. uh, on the stairs uh, well, to catch my breath. that happened to me, yeah. yeah. Just uh, trying to go up the stairs. You're like, wow, yeah. I'm getting out of yeah. shape. And that was a wake-up call because I was always athletic. And then I went so deep into the the orthodontics and just in the residency and all that that I just lost sight of that. And never going to do that again. And especially as you get older, I think it's really important to keep things up because bouncing back after taking a break becomes increasingly difficult. So um, yeah, whatever you do, as long as you have a little bit of fun doing it, uh, that makes it easier. I do think you got to stay active. Yeah, for sure. Totally. You know, one of your other, uh, pastimes is tennis. I know you're passionate about tennis. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. And we're almost coming full circle here. I used to play a lot of tennis when I was a junior and, uh, even spent, you know, six months in beautiful Florida at Nick Bollettieri's tennis Academy mm. down in, in Bradenton. And uh, so I was I was really serious about it. And then when I went to dental school, I really, I was tied up with dental school and didn't make the progress I wanted to make anymore. And rather than just scaling it back, I totally quit. And I picked hmm. up tennis again about three years ago or so because I realized it was just too fun of a sport to just let that completely go. Yeah, I love it. And uh, this year I got back into competitive playing and I've won a couple of tournaments again. And uh, it's awesome. just yeah, singles. It's a, Singles and doubles. Okay. I have a great doubles partner. So I've won a, a doubles tournament, then a singles Congrats. tournament. Yeah, thank you. It's just fun. You know, you play against these 20-year-olds and they're all a lot fitter than you are. But, you know, you play a little bit more smart and you're the wily old <laughs> dude on the court now. It's fun and it's just another way to keep moving and be athletic. So I enjoy that a lot. Awesome. And talk to me a little bit about your investing. Are you still doing futures trading? So I've always been really interested in finance. And um, in fact, I was very torn between going into finance or going into dentistry. Hmm. And I followed my parents' footsteps, figured you earn enough money as a dentist that you can manage your own money rather than other people's money. But, um, you know, I've always done stocks. I, I think I bought my first stock when I was 15 years old or so. In the mid to late 2000s, I think 2007 or so, I got into futures trading and, you know, just like in orthodontics, I recommend everybody get a mentor to accelerate uh, their learning experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for TADS, I'd love to be your mentor for other stuff. Pick somebody Mm -hmm. that knows what they're talking about and is willing to share. You know, I realized I read a ton of books, but that got me nowhere. And uh, then I looked for the best trader in the world. And um, Mm -hmm. The only person that's ever turned uh, $10,000 into over a million dollars within a year, so over a 10,000% return, was Larry Williams. And Larry Williams, probably most of you haven't heard of, but you all know his daughter, Michelle Williams, the actress that was, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, you know, Oscar winner and all that. So Larry is unbelievable in his ability to trade futures and. He gives courses, and I went to one of his courses, I went to another one of his courses, and we've become friends. He became my mentor, and I learned how to futures trade from one of the world's best traders, and um, I'm nowhere in that league, but there is, for example, a competitive trading scene. There are trading championships, 
And uh, in 2009, I placed fifth in the World Cup of Futures Trading. Wow. Yeah. You know, with, I didn't know there was such a thing. Yeah, there is. With the meager, I don't know, 98% return over 12 months, I think. But that was still significant and good enough to land me a top five spot. And then, you know, I was approached to actually do a so-called leader follower program where, you know, my trades get replicated and people can subscribe to those. That's still going on, which is kind of cool. Uh, there's a sophisticated software that if you sign up for that, it matches my trades and it automatically executes them in your account. And so you don't have to have any ability to trade. I can do that for you or other people can do that for you. There's a lot of so-called World Cup advisors. But at this point, I'm just obligated to say that past performance is not necessarily indicative of future <laughs> results. Okay. And, uh, this is definitely just for informational purposes. <laughs> nice disclaimer. I, I have to and add And you have that, no financial interest. Well, in this case, in this case, I, I do have a little bit of skin in the game, but, uh, <laughs> but I do have to add that. Yeah, there you go. Sebastian, thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for being my guest on the podcast. I have a great time out here in Cleveland. Appreciate you being on the show. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Thank you uh, for including me in your podcast series. Absolutely. Want to learn more about TADS? For exclusive outtakes from our conversation, head over to IlluminateOrthoPodcast.com or to the SoundCloud app. You'll hear Sebastian's thoughts on TAD tipping, TADS for temporary tooth replacement, and what's in store for the future of mini screws. And as we close out our 10th episode, I want to give a very special thanks to my Illuminate team. This podcast is mixed and mastered by Skylar Adler of Skylar Ross Recording. The musical contributions come from London-based Tom O'Grady. Tom is the keyboardist for the jazz funk band Resolution 88. Tom adds the vintage vibe you're hearing now with my favorite instrument, the Fender Rhodes Electric Piano. Thanks so much for listening to the Illuminate Orthodontic Podcast. If you like the show, please take a second to click subscribe. Also, I'd really appreciate if you could share this show with your friends. Until next time, this is Chris Setta, signing off. <laughs>